What's up, traders? Anthony Crudelli here, and thank you for tuning in to the Futures Radio Show podcast. Are you prepared for this week's highly anticipated FOMC meeting? I know that I still have my homework to do, so I asked Alex Gravich to join me on today's live stream to help us traders prepare for this extremely important meeting. Alex is a Wall Street Journal best-selling author. We're going to talk about his book today and Chief Investment Officer of Honte. After earning a PhD in mathematics from the University of Chicago, he leveraged his passion for strategic gaming into a lucrative Wall Street career. He was hailed by the Wall Street Journal in 2003 as the star trader of J.P. Morgan, where he served as managing director in charge of global macro trading. Today, I will talk with Alex about scenarios he sees coming from the Fed in this upcoming FOMC meeting. What do you think is about inflation? the stock market, dollar, bonds, oil, precious metals. Now, this podcast is sponsored by TradeStation and FTSE Russell. Currently, TradeStation is running a promo just for our audience. New users are going to get 50% off brokerage fees for the lifetime of their account using the promo code F-U-T-R-A-F-Z-T, as long as they open an account by April 30th. Go to tradestation.com slash Anthony to learn more. I'll drop that link down below as well. And are you watching the stock market, specifically the Russell 2000? The Russell 2000 is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 future symbol RTY and micro E-mini Russell 2000 future symbol M2K. To learn more about FTSE Russell and their products, please visit footsierussell.com. Alex, what's up, my friend? Um, good. Thank you for having me on. I'm a huge fan of yours. You know, I've listened to you several times on my favorite macro podcast, which is Macro Voices with Eric Townsend. He and I have talked many times before. He's been on the show. Uh, I, I love what uh, he does there. And you're one of my favorite guests. And so I'm really excited to have you here today. And before we even get started, I mentioned that you're a Wall Street Journal um, bestselling author. I know everyone keeps asking me about uh, your book, Plug the name of your book real quick before we even get started. Here's the book. It's called The Trades of March 2020, A Shield Against Uncertainty. So this book is kind of a blow-by-blow blow account of how I feared, fared during the first few weeks of the pandemic, the so the pandemic and financial markets. And I'm thinking of it as for aspiring traders, it's like for a medical student going into the operating room and actually seeing exactly how things unfold. What I try to do, use the transcripts and social media snapshots to give a very faithful account of what was both going on inside the company, but also in the world. And I wanted to tie it up with a psychological journey of like stress and descending into the pandemic with, when it affects both your portfolio and your personal life. So my the big differentiation point, I think, is a truthful, unbiased account that I bring with having actual records of conversations. Yeah. And, you know, I, I loved it. And I think that everyone should go out there and, and definitely get this book. And in a lot of what you wrote in that book is really what I'm going to tie into what we're looking and seeing at right now. You know, it was interesting on how you looked at the markets back in March of 2020. And I think we're actually in a very unique time as well. And something that you talk about, obviously, we have the Fed meeting coming up. Uh, we've got the Fed decision tomorrow. This is going to be, I think, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Is this probably one of the most important Fed meetings we've had in, the, I mean, in some time? Well, it is of some consequence because every time it is important when we switch the cycle. So we had a, for a while, we now had rates hold steady. And tomorrow, of course, there is an absolutely overwhelming probability of rate hike, which is the first one in a couple of years now the first change of policy, official change of policy in a couple of years on actual rates. So it always has an impact when you launch on that path. And, and markets have certain ways they tend to react to when the hiking cycle starts. And there are certain similarities and differences to past environments. Yeah, one thing that you mentioned, and I thought this was extremely interesting, is, and I, I'm going to say this in, in the way that I perceived it, and obviously you can correct me, but you talked about how over projections of easing and flattening actually mean we're set for the opposite to happen. You, you talked about, I've heard you talk about how you said when everybody was talking about rates are going to be at zero for a long period of time, uh, that actually you know meant the opposite was going to happen you know, sooner than people thought. And right now everyone's talking about how much the Fed is going to tighten, and you actually think 
that that means we're probably going to be easing in 2023. Yes, I, I wrote a book of, another book a few years ago called The Next Perfect Trade. And in that book, I talked about what I call the negative predictive power of interest rate futures. So the lower the trade, so the higher rates they project, the lower the rates end up being, and the lower the rates they project, the higher they end up being. And there is an economic reason for that, because whenever rates are projected to be high, that already creates tightening. So you kind of don't need to tighten after that. And yes, I think uh, I see a lot of signs of signs of late cycle, and I do think that the probability is overwhelming that will be easing in 2023, and maybe even before that. Though that would be, I think. I mean, it's only nine months away. You know, I mean. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is always surprising how fast the easing cycles comes. What is very when I learned this fact many years, I learned this fact many years ago, but I was astonished when I learned that fact, and then it kept holding up extremely well. The average time lag between the last hike of a hiking cycle and the first ease of the next easing cycle is just a few months. It's mind-boggling because every time we do this last hike, everything is groovy, and we're all thinking, and the Fed, the Fed almost never says, we're hiking now and we're done, we shouldn't hike anymore. They always say, like, we're biased to hike more. But uh, think about the last cycle, just there are many other examples, but think about the last cycle. They still were hiking in 2018 in a, despite significant sell-off in the stock market, which by the way is very similar to the current environment. We saw severely flattening yield curve, we saw sell-off in the stock market, we by the way saw an oil spike preceding that. We saw all those signs of late cycle in 2018. And at some point in 2018, I wrote down 16 cycle, 16 signs, 16 indicators that were in late cycle. And they still hiked in December 2018. And only a few months later in summer 2019, they were easy. And I don't think they were really planning for that when they were hiking in 2018. So we're much in, in the same environment. I do think that it's quite possible and even likely that they will get in more than one hike. But I think when things turn, they will turn much faster than people think. What are your expectations for the Fed to do? What are your expectations for the Fed tomorrow? I think they will hike 25 basis points. I know that some people have talked of hike, uh, hiking 50 basis points. I think it's fairly unlikely because uh, they virtually never do surprise hikes. And I know that this is kind of a weird environment. But um, the last time they did a surprise hike, I think it was like in 94, and it didn't go very well because of course the bond market collapsed. I don't think they want to really rock the boat with 25 basis, with more than 25 basis point hike. I think they, however, will be forced to talk very hawkish. So you think that they'll hike by 25 basis points and the talk will be hawkish. And, yeah. and do you, how do you think the market perceives that? Because if that's your expectation, do you think that the market looks at that and says, that's what we're expecting? The market uh, probably, yeah, it's very hard to say the first reaction of the stock market. Like I believe that we're in a bear market, that we're in a grinding bear market right now. Yeah. And I'm still bearish on the stock market. Conditionally bearish in a sense that I never put my chips on the table to like bet against stock market because yeah. on average it goes up, but it's it's not a good setup for stock market. And interestingly, of course, there is an elephant in the room. There is a war going on and there are so many different paths of war, which is very hard to predict. But one of the important views that I hold that uh, very, even if there is a very positive resolution of the situation in Eastern Europe, even if everyone gets an off-ramp, which allows people to lift sanctions from Russia and Russian troops to pull out and everybody be kind of painfully satisfied, so to say, right? Even if there is an off-ramp. And I think that there is a good chance there will be. I still think that, I don't think that really helps the stock market very much. I think the forces are different here at play. And the main force is really the interest rate momentum, which is very negative. And fiscal momentum is negative as well. So some news just came out, and thanks, Dan, for sharing it with us. He says it just hit the tape. He said, Putin, Kiev, not serious to find mutually acceptable solution. How much of this news do you think the FOMC will have any impact on their rate decision tomorrow? I think... At the moment, they will not take this uh, kind of the little, the every piece of news regarding the war to, into the decision is just going back and forward. 
This is going to be a back and forward diplomacy conversations. I think they'll definitely mention the war. In the, I don't know if they'll mention it as a statement. They might, but they definitely will. There will definitely be a lot of talk of the war in a uh, in a press conference afterwards. I think they will, however, they will probably say something about uncertainty, but they will say that like, look, we have serious inflation pressures and we need to deal with them. I happen to disagree with that. I think that they're totally catastrophically wrong, but uh, I and, and we can go get back into this. But as traders, it is very important that we need to realize we cannot guide ourselves by what the Fed should do. I've made this mistake many times. <laughs> right. I don't you know. Yeah. yeah, I see you have a look yeah. of recognition on your face, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you cannot guide yourself by what Fed the policymakers should do. You should really think what they will do. And much, I said it for years, this sentence, and I still fall into that trap of thinking, well, that's what makes sense, so therefore that's what's going to happen. No, what happened is totally not making sense to me, but this is what's happening. I think they're going to have to stay the course. I, what, I, what might affect, be affecting their mentality, probably more than the swings of war situation, is the fact that oil uh, just had a huge, huge crash, right? From, yeah. Like oil actually down 30%. In other news, right from the very top, still at a fairly lofty levels, and still it's mostly like a lot of action is happening in the front oil contracts. The deferred oil is probably not as volatile as the front oil, but still this is a big deal, and it probably gives people to do a breath, gives people a breath of relief in certain ways. But in certain ways, it's not even clear how oil should affect the Fed policy. And that is another. We can go deeper in that conversation, but it's not really clear what is should be more hawkish for the Fed, really catastrophic rise in oil or moderation oil prices. Because of course, oil affects the headline inflation, but they probably could discard headline inflation if other kinds of inflations were controlled and think that oil is just, because spikes in oil were pretty good uh, way to forecast inflations in the past. And you could argue that things are different now, US is a net producer of energy, uh, we, we're not, we, for us, like energy prices going up actually is inflationary now. And I've been in that camp to an extent, but only to an extent. Let's talk about inflation because I've heard your views on this and I think it's very interesting. And I took some notes on it. And basically what you were talking about was, once again, correct me if I'm wrong, because a lot of the stuff I'm reading, hearing you talk about, I'm putting this into my own words. You said that you're not that worried about inflation right now. Maybe that's changed. I heard this a little while ago. You said it, it really is more of a shortage of supply. Just look at the way that hard assets are trading. I mean, uh, you know, you could look at, you said the um, um, gold, you know, for example, you know, we'll look at the way that that's trading. I mean, we could even talk about Bitcoin as well, as well, but any sort of store of value type trades aren't performing the way you would anticipate in an inflationary time like we we're seeing. And I really look at it like this, is that if gold and Bitcoin, which are supposed to be hedges against inflation, can't rally in this, I, I don't know when they can rally essentially, right? But what is your take overall inflation? Yes, I'm still not worried. I still don't worry about inflation. I think we should be worried about deflation right now. And I can go into this in a second. Uh, two caveats though. One caveat is when it comes to long-term inflation forecasting, I can't really claim expertise. It's kind of like a layperson's talking because I'm not an economist, I'm a trader. What I yeah. do is try to find trades, not to forecast inflation. Like I don't have any secret sauce to forecast inflation. Uh, second caveat is that wars are inflationary events. And this war could somewhat sway the path of at least headline inflation in the world. Now, I do not think that this war is big enough to sway the inflation path in the United States. But, you know, I've been wrong about this war before. Like it turned out to be much bigger than people ex expect. So this is the caveat. Wars are inflationary, just almost by definition, because what you do, you print a lot of money, you buy a lot of stuff, and instead of actually having stuff after this, you blow it up. Yeah. So you blow up a lot of stuff, you have less stuff and less stuff and more money left, which is almost the definition of inflation, right? So there is, that is to be not discarded. But yeah, I think the current environment, current economic environment and almost the product, not of what is currently happening, but what was happening a year or two ago. There is always a lag, right? What was happening a year or two ago, we had massive stimulus coming. 
checks going to people, super easy policy, quantitative easing, stock market was rallying, um, dollar was fairly weak. Everything that could stimulate, like if you look at dollar-centric world, like everything that could have been inflationary was inflationary. And guess what? We're seeing inflation. And then that stuff that was inflationary overlaid with supply bottlenecks. And again, the caveat, supply is only a portion of the inflation. Much of it is demand-driven. If you're if an economist, really break it down. An economist point out to the fact that a lot of money went to low-wage earnings with very high marginal propensity to consume, all those arguments. But yes, I'm saying, yes, all of these things have happened. And now we're seeing inflation. But what are the things that are happening now? Now we're having negative interest rate momentum. Interest rates are rising. We have negative fiscal momentum. We have tightening of policy, uh, both via uh, anticipated rates. And we're about to start tightening in practice. We stopped quantitative easing already. Uh, so all of those things create the conditions for everything to roll over one or two years from now. Now imagine the world in which supply bottlenecks are resolved. Meanwhile, people were stocking up on things. And I know for, sh for sure that certain business owners were stocking up on things because they feared inflation. So we're having, we'll probably demand will probably moderate. People faced with negative real wages probably will not be spending all that much more. And I think the energy prices will absolutely get obliterated if the war ends. Because no, because not only Russia will have to imagine that everybody becomes friends again with a big question mark, but kind of like everybody somehow resolves everything. Uh, and now Russia needs to restore its economy, it needs to sell a lot of energy. Suppose sanctions are removed, right? But then they want to sell energy, but nobody, no matter how nice they're now, nobody will want to be energy dependent on Russia again. So everybody will be prospecting for energy, finding alternative solutions. So I think energy prices are heading for a big decline. I feel um, commodity prices will probably decline overall. Meanwhile, China is going on lockdown and they will be fighting the virus. And China's had stock market crash essentially. Like US has a bear market. I think China had something worse, looking worse than US, especially in tech stocks lately. That will force them to probably weaken their currency just do some kind of like easing momentum on their side, but that would be potentially deflationary for the rest of the world. That is kind of an interesting question whether what China will do will be deflation or inflation, because China might kind of start moving in the opposite direction of the world, right? Because they have a strong currency and weak markets and various problems, right? But I think between all those facts, but usually when one major central bank becomes and policy becomes easier, it's harder to, for the others to stay tighter. It's like US pulling everybody, but China is not big enough that it might pull everybody too. So I'm seeing all those factors and I'm seeing, uh, yeah, we could have high inflation prints for the next few months. I think in a few months, they start probably getting, we start getting negative month on month prints and 2023 will probably have negative inflation. And you know, this is why I like talking to you about this because you look at it from the trader's perspective. You're not looking at it from the economist's perspective. So you're looking where the opportunities are. That's why I thought that book was great. And I really like talking with you today about this because we are in a time where I think that there is opportunity. You know, everybody talks about how efficient markets always are and the prices are what they are. I mean, I don't really believe in that. I believe that there wouldn't be opportunity if markets were always so efficient in price, right? And so I look at things and say, where are the opportunities? To me, it sounds like what you're saying is the opportunities right now are to fade this big move in commodities. Um, now, this is also based upon some things happening down the road. I don't think it's an all-in type scenario, but what you're saying is, is that you see that being the opportunity right now. Well, the opportunity might just lie in interest rates, both okay. in the US and some other countries like uh, Australia and New Zealand, where rates are projected to be go higher. Because if commodities fall, one, there's an interest. Like sometimes what I, I like to think about is like what trade might work in the broadest range of scenarios. Uh, you could be like shorting some commodity and get squeezed. And I'm always worried about shorting commodities. It's not really <laughs> I am too. It's tough. <laughs> I, I, I hate that trade. On a, like the occasions when I bought puts on commodities, but I'm, I'm always worried about shorting them. So, uh, However, if commodities were to fall and we'd have the economic rollover, there is no way uh, rates in countries like Canada or Australia or New Zealand will go anywhere as high as they're projected. 
So besides US, there might be like other opportunities to diversify in a rates environment. Um, but they're kind of like, what I like to think about, what do you bet on if things go bad, like risk off? And what is good, what do you bet on when things are good risk off? So like, what will make money for your portfolio if, uh, if kind of economy is good and the war is dissolved and what will make money in your portfolio uh, if we have a recession? So interest rates is usually a really good way to make money in recessionary environments. I think actually precious metals probably will do okay too if the policies turn to it's easier. And now that they have a correction from the kind of war crisis, they're getting a little more attractive again. Though, as we mentioned before, they're not really going up a lot. But I think the trend on precious metals is pretty decent the, because even before the war, they were picking up some momentum. And it is important to remember, this is why I like to look at past cycles. Again, not even, I don't have an explanation sometimes. As you say, think like a trader, what happens? Yeah. 2004, 2007, Fed was tightening, gold was rallying. And it started actually to rally as the Fed started to tighten. Dollar was not actually doing that strongly throughout those few years. If anything, it was going weaker, 2004, 2007. So there, there is, in some sense, I was expecting this and I was all blindsided by the fact that dollar strengthened a lot in second half of 2021. I mean, I repositioned, but I was, oh, wait, where is this coming from? I was expecting dollar to be a bit weaker. Uh, and of course the war only increased the strength of the dollar, especially with Euro being whatever the beating boy of uh, currencies, right? So I don't know what's what weeping boy, right? Sorry. So so I so oh the punching bag, right? That's a good one. So so uh, I feel uh, there are trades you can do in that direction and there are trades you can do in the other direction. And I think when you talk about like trading, I read about this a lot in my book, in the trade of March. So you have this commotion, pandemic, and things are trading at various prices. You can look at things and say, like, but what will have to go back to normal at some point, right? At some point, uh, pandemic will be somehow resolved, right? Same thing that somehow the world rush will be resolved. And I think exactly. this might be a good uh, time to take position on things which move to very extreme levels which you kind of know that it doesn't matter where they are now. Two years from now, when things are normal, they'll go back to normal. And those type of positions are very, I found very profitable to take courage on during crisis times. And the risk is that you take them on too early and they go against you. And then instead of adding, you'll have to stop out. That is the caveat as always. But the idea of let's see what is abnormal now and get normal no matter what once the current situation is resolved. Yeah, I mean that's why I was interested in talking with you because how what had happened with the trades of March in your book, how you how you talked about how the pandemic and how it's set up into these opportunities. Now we have this war. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it's a major event in the world, and it moved a lot of the markets. And now we have, as traders, we've got this Fed meeting coming up, and there's just we're just at such a unique time because there's just I mean there's some really powerful trends going on that are either going to continue or you're going to see some massive reversion like you're seeing right now in crude oil. And what I, what I find interesting so far as I'm taking notes about this is, is that you look at the commodities right now as a lead to a potential other trade, which would potentially be interest rates. Um, and you even said precious metals, right? So I just want to get into your mind a little bit and how you're thinking about how, how a trade sets up is that basically you're looking at something like the commodities that have run to extremes, right? We don't know how far those extremes could be, but we see that they're at extreme, uh, it's an extreme move. And as they start to revert back, you think that that creates the opportunity by watching those markets somewhere else. Right, yes. I think there are certain markets that are more profitable to look as lead indicators rather than to make direct bets. Exactly. Because yeah. uh, as I said, like speculating, and you will always look like a genius if you sold oil at the, uh, 135 when it spiked a few days ago, yeah. but also you could have said the same about oil at 110. And if you sold at 110, I don't know how well you would have held it at 135. I mean, you can have different, of course, risk limits and different risk management things, but it would have been tough for most traders. So, however, 
seeing oil crash, you can say like, what it means to, what does it mean for longer term inflation? And maybe no. this is a temporary crash, maybe it's gonna go up again. And also 95 oil is not cheap. Exactly. We probably need it to be 60, 70 to know for normal environment, right? Yeah. But at least it's not 130. And I, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been thinking just about like today, you know, this morning when I came in, I'm just relating it to, to what you're doing to, to kind of what I'm doing. I think a lot of traders listening to this as well. When I saw oil get clipped, I'm like, is that got to be bullish for NASDAQ a little bit today? You know, I stepped in and I bought, you know, some calls today because of what I saw in oil. I'm like, it's back down to here. You got to think that's going to help lift, you know, equities a little bit. That's it's the same type of thinking. It's there's no, it's so hard for me to get short oil, even though I think it could have went lower because it's just going to blip me out in two seconds versus trying to be long something else that's that's happening in it. And I think that's similar to what you're looking at, because when you get into these moves that are so volatile, look at to where there's something else that it could create um, an impact on that market. And I think that's really interesting. I, you know, I'm getting some questions from people, and I think that this is a good question to kind of talk about because we're talking about interest rates here. And Kavi is saying, thanks for hosting this webcast. Can I please know Alex's vision on the shape of the 210 yield curve? Obviously, everyone's talking about this right now, right? Which is very flat. Do you expect Do you expect an inversion before the market starts to price easing? Um, yes, inversion is quite possible. And we already have significant inversion in certain portions of the dollar curve. And I have a lot of thoughts on yield curve and inversion and sometimes i'll conflicted about it first of all as everybody talks about inversion of a yield curve is incredibly good predictor of recessions if you just look at the time scale in the past uh, inversions just predicted really well recessions uh, i sometimes say that maybe it's not really predicting recession because you already by the time the curve inverts you already have conditions in place so uh once in one of my articles i said Inversion of the yield curve predicts recession in the same way, like as if you're falling off the 20th story building. The fact that you're flying past the 10th floor is a very good predictor that you're going to hit the ground. But the reality is that you're already there. You're already collapsing. Uh, so in some sense, severe curve inversion already happens when other things in the place and the cycle is on a place when you're probably going to get uh, recession probably gonna get easier i noticed this thing remember i talked to you about negative early in this podcast we talked about negative predictive power of interest rates but i found one interesting fact and again this is something that i found noticed like almost 20 years ago and it still bore out incredibly well which is i i put a lot of value and observations i make in the past because then I looked at data before that moment, and then I had, a, and then it worked for me afterwards. Like those type of observations are particularly valuable because they're not calibrated. It's not something I'm now looking at the history and guessing. It's something that I've thought about long ago, and it happened to be true. So I noticed long ago that whenever there is a portion of the curve that kind of shows some possibility of easing, and that persists for any time, then not only that easing occurs, but it occurs on a much greater scale than what the yield curve predict. So because we now have persistent easing predicted in 2023 and 2024, based on historical pattern, there is very elevated chance that the easing will be actually profound, which means zero, going to zero rates again, because there is nowhere else to go. So to me, the probability of zero rates by 2024 is extremely elevated, at least relative to what the current market is pricing. Of course, Nothing is certain in this market. You can have all sorts of different paths, but the shape of what we're seeing right now is definitely indicating indicating that that's the way we're going. And what is really puzzling, not only to me, I know, but to many other traders, that that started even before we had the first hike. Usually that type of inversion exactly. happens well into the hiking cycle. Like we didn't even get a chance to hike and already inverted. What does it mean? Yeah, that's, that's to me the part where, you know, when I hear you talk about that, I'm like, well, we didn't even... It, it's amazing the power, I think, also of, of the Fed talking about what they're going to do prior to something. It's almost like in its own right, they, they, they raise the rates in a sense, right? So I, I understand yeah. your point of what you're saying is that the more anticipated, the, the more that they talk about the extreme of it, it actually sets up 
for a closer time to where the opposite happens. And as a trader, I think we can see that because it's it's a pattern in its own right. You know, we we see it happen. And when they start talking about it, they're talking it and essentially it's it's they're not doing it, but it's like they're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and I actually I'm gonna pull up the bond chart. When you were talking, I pulled up the two and ten year on there and it was uh, right now we got the two year at 1.87 and we got the tens at 2.13 and so yeah i mean it's 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 pretty flat you know um i'm going to pull up the and the only reason it's not inverted honestly is because we still have a lot of ramp up because the rates are zero now right because rates are zero and there is still a lot of tightening to get to your yield to the point where it's going to be right yeah if we forward if you look at the, that same curve one year forward i Pretty sure it'll be inverted. I don't have that chart up there. Otherwise, I would. Yeah, it's hard to construct, but I'm just yes. like forward. But I know what you're saying. The curve are much more inverted. The only reason why two-year yield is lower than ten-year yield that the yields for this year are still kind of low because even with the most bearish projection, they still have to hike a few times to get to this two percent rate. Right. This podcast is sponsored by TradeStation and FTSE Russell. Currently, TradeStation is running a promo just for our audience. New users are going to get 50% off brokerage fees for the lifetime of their account using the promo code F-U-T-R-A-F-Z-T as long as they open an account by April 30th. Go to tradestation.com slash Anthony to learn more. I'll drop that link down below as well. And are you watching the stock market, specifically the Russell 2000? The Russell 2000 is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 future symbol RTY and micro E-mini Russell 2000 future symbol M2K. To learn more about FTSE Russell and their products, please visit footsierussell.com. I want to talk about the tenure because on Fed days, a lot of times for me, I'll go to the tenure. You know, indices get too busy. For, they could just get so whippy. I'm not trading. I don't trade NASDAQ on FOMC days anymore. But the 10 years to me where I'll, I'll look to see, you know, where the action is. And I, I like that as, as a day trader. Um, and after hearing a lot of what you talked about today, it sounds to me as though that you think the opportunity, and you could just see here, I pulled up a daily chart of the 10 year, that the opportunity is potentially to start getting long bonds and treasuries, right? Yes. So... Tomorrow, and I know we're not going to put a lot of emphasis on tomorrow. I know you're a much longer term thinker and it's not something that you'll, you'll do right away. But at what point do you start looking at the treasuries and say, the, the opportunity is in front of me now. I need to start getting long this market. I probably would be long now within like certain risk limits. I'll probably be long now because I don't know how tomorrow will play out. One interesting thing that I've noticed is that it's very easy to be whipsawed on the Fed day. Oh, yeah. Um, I almost had this rule that like whatever the market does immediately after the release of the statement, they usually do the opposite in the next few hours, and then it could reverse once again in the next two days. It's a very whipsaw environment post-Fed because they're very seldom surprised in a very simple directional way. Most likely what they do is like they... Yeah, they will hike 25, which is slightly less than the market prices. I'm just going through a central scenario, right? But they talk yeah. bullish, so they might like forward futures could even sell off a little. Stock market decides to rally a little, then it sells off a little. There could be all those things that could whip soar a lot. Going forward, I think the long run looks good for fixed income markets, but my thesis has to bear out that in not only economy has to roll over, but inflation has to roll over. And I want to be very clear with viewers, listeners, that there are other people who hold a very different thesis and think that inflation is there to stay and it might even go higher and that the Fed could be forced to hike rates even more than projected. That view exists out there. People who are thinking that are not stupid. I'm just telling you what my bias is. I think that I'm personally seeing increasing evidence that inflation is transitory, not the opposite. Uh, however, what happens tomorrow, yeah, it's, it might be very, uh, it might, there might be a lot of whipsaws. I think that the one kind of surprise that people may see that when we see some relief on the war frontier and maybe even some relief from the Fed, like, oh, they didn't hike more than projected, um, things might not stay groovy in the stock market for very long. I still think we're going to be, you asked me the question, what would make me change from 
uh, to be more bullish on stock market, although when, when the rates will start coming down significantly. I feel like the setup, I'm not going to be bullish stock market, probably in, in this, in any, no matter what happens in this environment, for as long as interest rates are higher than they were, significantly higher than they were two years ago. So, so just if stock market rebounds, I probably will not put a lot of faith in it. Got it. And, but just thinking about that, you mentioned that you think that will already be easing by 2023, right? So I guess, how much do you think the Fed will even raise this year? Well, that's very hard to predict. Uh, I honestly thought, if you asked me a few months ago, I thought that they would get a chance to ease only once or twice. So hike on that once or twice. Now that they're so hell bound to hike, I'm thinking maybe they'll get to 1%, maybe even a little higher, because maybe they, they could even do a clip of 50 this spring. I think they kind of have a window to keep hiking till maybe midsummer. But that's, that's currently what I see the central center. It's quite possible that it continue going on. I think one of the interesting things about such environments, the same thing that was happening in 2018, there is a very wide range of outcomes and all of them are likely. In the sense that here I'm sitting with you and giving you my view that rates are zero by the end of 2003, but that's just one view. Then another person can give you a very legitimate view that rates are gonna be three and a half percent by the end, or even 4% by the end of, well, 2021. And this is also possible. There is no way for you to sit outside and say, this guy is totally wrong and this guy is totally right. Or this person is totally, yeah. So um, it's so true though. I mean, I completely agree. I don't care how much someone studies this. It, it's just like even going back to the Fed doesn't know. It to be, yeah, I mean, how do they know? I mean, they, they're they playing this by ear. You know, I, I don't think that they ultimately, they could say that they have a plan, which is why they got rid of the dot plots and all that. I mean, I dot plot from the beginning and never, they never really followed it, but so let's stick with it on the traders aspect of it. And then let's really focus in on this week. So we have 25 basis point. We think they're going to talk hawkish because that's just what it is. You talked about that the opportunity still is in 10 year or, or in you know 30 year, whatever bonds or treasuries you're going to be trading in gold. How is you as a trader, what gets you to start pulling the trigger? I mean, what, what, talk to us maybe about what positions you currently have and what maybe after this week, if something does happen, triggers you to start getting into a position. So, so yeah, I am long duration, not hugely, but I have some long duration positions around the world. I am very modestly long precious metals complex, mostly through the mining stocks. I am also one of the positions, I have some currency positions were actually more directional towards relief of the pressure. Like for example, Euro Suisse, I think offered a really good opportunity during those times because what happens is if there's a panic, Swiss franc gets very expensive, but then what will resolve itself one way or another? That's probably not so much related to the Fed, but those are my positions. I generally tend to, uh, while we're thinking about tactically, talking about tactically trading the Fed, I tend to just position myself what I want for the long term within the size as my portfolio can bear the volatility if I can and just hold it. Don't think about like, I'm going to wait for this event or when to go past the Fed meeting or past this unemployment report. I usually think if I have a strong opinion that something's going to happen in two years, that's the position I'm going to put in. Having said that, I tend to increase my positions when things start going in my favor often. When I feel like momentum is changing and things are going my way, I tend to pyramid, but I like to have something on. So that's kind of my bias right now, have something on. If you see any kind of sense of economic numbers, and we've already had some very mixed economic numbers lately, even from today. Like interestingly, the core portion of production price index, uh, surprise on the downside and empire manufacturing, surprise on downside, it's been mixed. But I think like as that momentum building, I think that's a good, thing to watch. Tactically, I do think the setup is pretty good for rates because uh, one of the things, as I said, Fed could really whip sore, but I find Fed kind of tends to release whatever pressure was building before. So we had a very big sell-off on rates. The pressure was towards more and more hikes last few days. And last few months, there was a bit of a spike on the war, but then it got taken out as the prevailing narrative became there's only more inflation because of the war, which is not wrong by itself. 
So we had this uh, pressure, and my bias is that maybe this pressure will be relieved a little bit, and people will start looking more like, hey, we're having significant and protracted correction of global stock markets. We are having some kind of mixed economic numbers. The growth numbers are probably not coming great out of this quarter. And uh, commodity prices will not run up forever. So as much as they created positive momentum for inflation, and created negative inflation, momentum for inflation. So all of those things may kind of factor in a post-Fed kind of deep sigh of relief if that happens. Again, notice I only talk about scenario when Fed hikes 25 and doesn't surprise anybody by 50 basis point hike. I mean, let's just say they did 50 basis point. What do you think the immediate reactions would be? Markets? Uh, well, it'll probably flatten the yield curve more, almost by definition. Yeah. I think that original action of the stock market could be down, but I don't think it will be in self cause like any kind of. It, it'll be just a knee jerk, but I don't think stock market will do what it does, I think, after the Fed, not because of what the Fed said or does. The, if, they, for example, they say, like, we're going to do 50 basis points, but I'm how the implication will be that it'll be done sooner, it's not necessarily by itself negative for the stock market. Stock market can really surprise us on reaction. Like, I, I know you, you know, <laughs> to <this>. say the <laughs> least. <laughs> well, you know, you were talking earlier how you bought stock market today uh, because of. Oil price relief. Yes, and I was also I did. thinking to myself, yeah, it's also because it's Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> the turnaround Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> it's been really magical. Turnaround Tuesdays recently has been a very powerful indicator. Funny how that works, right? I mean, we used to talk about turnaround Tuesday all the time in the pit, too. Oh, it, um, it's going to happen until the time that you buy, when you buy. Exactly. Tuesday. You know what's funny? <laughs> all indicators me, work till you actually start using them. Oh, it's just incredible like that. You know, there's two reasons when I came in this morning, I actually looked on my app. I had my trading view app up and I go year to date and people that use it will know it says down 20.3%. I said, you got the 20% algos probably coming in. And when I saw oil getting down, it was funny when I went in and just tried to day trade it, I got chopped up <laughs> and I just said, you know what? I'm just going to buy some options here because if I'm right, I, I can't hold this. It's just roll over, you know, futures, things going on where I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and try to micromanage it. But, you know, my reasons weren't super technical. It was just like, like you said, it was one of those things where I look at it and go, can they maybe do it? And then you see it. Um, it's funny how traders think, isn't it right, Alex? It's like, you know, we, we, we're, we're kind of quirky people. <laughs> yeah, it, is, it is a very particular world. And I think that's like going back to what I talked earlier. This is what I really wanted to show in my book, what it is really like, because I think Hollywood doesn't really do it justice. No. What is really happening in the pit, what is really happening, like all the cursing, all the kind of frustration. And they do show a lot of cursing, but they don't really show what people are cursing about. Oh, yeah. I was just, I mean, they don't talk about trader's stomach. Like my stomach's always, <laughs> my my wife is like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, I can't, I can't even talk about this. I got pain. <laughs> Um, I want to talk of, about, I think it's important to cover some of these potential shocks tomorrow because I, let's face it. I, I mean, like we, you and I both said, we don't know what's going to happen and we can't, I don't, I'm not going to plan on what I'm going to do either. I'm going to watch the reactions. I know you'll do the same thing. You could say what you think, um, you would do, but if something is showing you the opposite, maybe you don't, but, um, what happens in a scenario if possibly you think they do 25 basis points and everyone's talking about how, hawkish they probably are going to talk and they'll just do 25 basis points and probably talk it up like we've discussed and that's something that they're doing is almost like psychologically um artificially kind of raising rates but maybe they don't what do you think that does and does that maybe trigger you to maybe be more interested in getting more long in bonds or, or treasuries I think them sounding dovish will not actually give me a positive signal because paradoxically, the more hawkish they'll be now, the, the better is a long-term outlook for bonds. Because the more they tighten right now, the more flatter they make the yield curve, the better it is for the long term. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But what I would really watch, if you really want to watch for something that is substantive, I would watch for the talk on the balance sheet reduction. Because there is really two ways to title. You can raise interest rates or you can reduce balance sheet. What is mind-boggling to me, what makes no sense to me, but again, other people had a different view on this, is why would they even conceive raising rates before they manage to significantly reduce the balance sheet? 
Because think about this, they have a liability, like several trillion dollar liability of excess reserves, and they're paying interest to the banks on this excess reserve. Why raise interest on it before you get rid of it? From that perspective, like if you're trying to tighten financial policy, like by raising rates, they're just basically saying, oh, we're going to pay banks more money. That's what they're doing. In fact, that is not even tightening, and it's definitely not going to cause help any supply bottlenecks. If they actually wanted to control inflation and control asset price bubble, they have to deleverage the system. To deleverage the system, you reduce excess reserves. So how if they, they went the path that they might not even have a chance to reduce balance sheet because they're going to hike a few times, they're going to just start maybe running off balance sheet and things will break and they have to start the next quantitative easing. It's like forever ending trap. They had a perfect, as I looked so last year, they had a perfect setup to stop quantitative easing, probably went faster than they did, and to keep and start running off the balance sheet and actually make it down to the balance sheet before the next thing happens. And I think they totally messed it up and took away the opportunity from themselves by focusing on hikes. And I know the Powell reasoning, he says that they know how hikes work, but the balance sheet work is not as clear and they wanted to work it more in the background. But I think it is important because if they start running off, the, the more, the faster they start running off balance sheet, the more, the less need there is to hike. And actually the lower will be rates in the long run because as they run off the balance sheet, that all in itself creates efficient amount of tightening. And even imagine that once they start the program of running more balance sheet, it will take a while for them to reverse it. So imagine if they start saying like, okay, we're not repurchasing and that's like $80 billion a month or whatever it is, right? Uh, maybe economy will get wobbly. They raise rates, say to 1%, they stop raising rates, but the balance sheet keeps running off. So they actually keep tightening in the background and that will cause them to need to tighten less in rates and ease faster. So that is, to me, that is really what to watch. I would watch their rhetoric on, the, on balance sheet as a signal on interest rates. This, this actually is a good question Jim is asking. He goes, aside from typical Fed tools, buying and, salaries, uh, and buying and selling treasuries, with current interest so low, is the Fed limited on options? Uh, if not, what additional options are available? I think it kind of ties into what we're talking about here, just kind of what to expect. Do you feel that the, a lot of people say that the Fed is trapped? They do, they have limited options at this point. They're kind of stuck on a, on a very narrow path. I think they trapped themselves a little bit, but going back to the tools, Fed has, in my opinion, Fed has three tools, three major tools. One of them is raising or lowering rates. Another of them is buying or selling assets, which could be treasuries, could be mortgages, could be broader range of assets. And uh, that tool, I think, is currently underutilizing, in my opinion, the tool of selling assets, because they could actually, they had an amazing opportunity to tighten by selling assets, and they're just totally squandering it. That's almost like ridiculously squandering it. Uh, but why they didn't sell assets while they were expensive last year makes no sense to me. And then the next, uh, there is another thing that is not talked about, but it is economically impactful, is banking regulations. They could tighten on ease by changing banking regulations. Because very much of how much cash is available to lend in the system, it depends on what leverage banks are allowed to take, what they're required to hold, what are their risk-weighted like parameters they have to use. So they could, they could manipulate it a lot in the background and change uh, with a significant economic impact. I want to move on and talk a little bit about gold because I'm getting a lot of things coming in on gold and, and you know, we only got about 10 more minutes left. And so for tomorrow with gold, and actually, this is actually got a good question here. It's a two part question. Um, I believe Alex's bull case on precious metals, despite tightening hinges on historical pattern. Is there anything that could happen that could technically damage that historical pattern? Could PMs possibly not be a good areas to place bets until we get to the next round of QE. Let me just pull up a gold chart. And I'm just curious, you know, um, I, I don't remember if you said you were in any sort of precious metals. Oh yeah, you're right. You said you were with the miners, um, mm -hmm. but not the actual um, trading the gold price. So just talk about that question and, and just maybe tomorrow some scenarios to where gold becomes interesting. I think gold is already interesting. I think uh, what we had is, I think gold, yes, historical pattern is a very important component for me to look at precious metals. And the reason why it's particularly important is because there is no really way to value gold. I cannot objectively tell you what gold should be worth. I cannot tell you, 
uh, oh, it should be 2,000 or 1,500 or 5,000. Uh, of course, mining stock, like the amount of mining that is being done responds somewhat to gold prices, but the supply, above ground supply dominates. It's not like we have so much new gold produced. So really the price is uh, defined just by liquidity. And liquidity is very much kind of based on convention. People just agree that gold is good, right? If they disagree, it goes down, they want it, they buy it. So you have pattern is almost like the only thing we can look at. Pattern and the amount of excess liquidity. It was, I feel the fact that gold started to perform well into the end of last year, kind of stabilized and stabilized early this year before the war broke out is really good. And you can see kind of that there was an uptrend forming and then it broke on this catastrophic rally. Again, not really a catastrophic rally. Honestly, 10% rally in gold is not such a huge deal given there is a, people are worried about nuclear war. And the, but now it corrected almost back to this trend. So I think it's at the levels where it's interesting to basically stay with it, I think. And uh, I think that uh, gold has a potential of going much higher to me. It's a lot about risk reward. Can gold go back to 1200? Yes, not terribly likely, but yeah, why not? It was there a certain amount of years ago. It could go there, but can it also go to 5,000? That's also a possibility. Oh, I'm talking about not immediate path. Yeah. So a big risk reward for metals like silver, gold, gold, and platinum, I think are good. I, I think you can express those views in different ways. I don't know if this is the place to be 100% full tier, full on long, but I definitely would like to be long and I would like to keep building as the trend establishes. You know, it's interesting that you said you went to the miners and, you know, most of the people that I know that are really um, bullish gold, they're not trading the price of gold as much as they are trading the miners. Um, explain to everybody, and I know a lot of people will, under, will, will understand this, as to why you choose to go to the miners versus just trading the outright price of gold? Well, there is a couple of simple reasons. Historically, just mining stocks are uh, relatively cheap right now to gold. Let me just say that's a very simple reason. Like Given where the gold okay. price is mining stocks, and there are some reasons why they fell down there, but over years, that prob there is a good chance of that resolving. Also, when you own gold, you have negative carry because you have to pay storage costs and interest rates on gold. So the futures roll will always cost you money. Mining stocks will earn you a little dividend. So if you plan to hold for a long time, it kind of grinds more in your favor. And the third reason, the reason I particularly like it, it's almost like owning mining stocks is almost like owning an option because you don't have to have so much because when gold goes up a lot, mining stocks tend to go much faster because they have a fixed cost. If it costs you $1,000 an ounce to mine gold, it, it's $1,200, you $200 profit. If it's gold goes to 2000 now your profit is $1,000, five times higher. So your leverage is much higher when you own mining stocks. So you don't have to expose yourself to so much notional. And I look for those opportunities because if everything goes to zero, just tomorrow, say, say gold is worth nothing. Gold went to zero. Mining stocks went to zero. You stand less to lose with a similar upside. Peter said he loved this conversation on gold, and he said, "What about the What about selling the volatility on gold or gold stocks?" I generally don't like selling volatility. It's it's very seldom part of my trading strategy, which is it is not to say selling volatility and it's for pertaining to any product on average makes money because usually people a little overpay for options for that protection sense. Uh, I used to be an option trader. I know very well that money lies on the side of selling volatility. But selling volatility is a way to tie up capital. Because whenever you short any option, you cannot, you don't have that capital because you need to hold back the capital to make sure if this option blows up. And if you're aiming decent returns of capital, selling volatility, I find is somewhat crippling. Yeah, so no, that, I would not consider that trade just in general principle. No, that makes sense. You know, I mean, traders always talk about managing risk, and a lot of people just look at that as, you know, where am I putting my stop or how much am I risking? It's not always the case. It's about picking the better product too. A lot of what we talked about today is what you're seeing over here. Your better risk manager might be trading something else over here. I mean, that to me is really where the where the art side comes, the artistic side comes into traders because. 
we've talked about two scenarios, you and I today, and how we both used other markets to potentially get us in another market because we felt we could manage our risk better um, because of something that happened over there, even though we think that is the direct impact as to why we're doing something. Um, great insight today, Alex. Uh, I mean, I just want to, we only got a few minutes left. Uh, thank you a lot for your time today. I want to talk a little bit um, about your book because um, I want everybody to go out there and get it because I think it, it it really ties into so much into what we're seeing now. And it's it's crazy to think almost, Alex, that we're coming off of a time where we had March of 2020 and here we are in 2022, you know, not too far after where we're having, like I said, I don't want to say it's the same scenario, uh, but it, it's similar in, in a lot of things that are going on. So it's I think it's a very important time. Yeah, something always happens. That's what I like to say. Well, it happens more and more and quicker and quicker. I think that's one of the most interesting things, right? Is that what you're saying is nowadays things, cycles are so much faster where it's like you come out of that big bear market and you say, oh, it could be who knows how long before it happens. And boom, NASDAQ's down 20% this year. So just like I said, just going back to um, talk to us a little bit about your book uh, and where people can go to learn more about you. Well, I, people can find me on Twitter, uh, like my first name is Gurevich23, uh, uh, and that probably will point you. My company is called Honte Investments uh, for qualified purchases. They can get on our website, and there are some public information available, but if you interested in investing, you have to be a qualified purchaser. It's H-O-N-T-I-N-V.com. Uh, you can find out more about that. My books are on Amazon, so this is my current book. I'm showing again the cover. I really love the way they did the paperback, uh, the trades of March 2020. And I do think that it is good for both professional traders and aspiring people and anybody who has any interest in basically managing pressure, managing crisis, having a psychological journey when you have pressure, but at the same time have no choice but to make some decisions. If you find yourself in that situation ever in your life, I think this book is an interesting guide and an interesting example how it could play out. And every crisis, as Anthony mentioned, is different. It's when a new crisis now, and somebody will probably else write a book about this one. <laughs> but there are certain common threads of thought about yes. how to stay calm and how to look through the chaos and see the opportunities which are likely to play out in the long run. And that's what I called my shield against uncertainty. No, absolutely. It was a brilliant book. And, you know, one thing you talked about pressure and this is what's great about your book is it's, it's a trader wrote this book and it's not a journalist or somebody who's talking about the markets and you and I can relate to what we've had to deal with, with pressure. Uh, I had a heart attack at the age of 36 on my trading screens. And you talked about how you were feeling ill and you were feeling like you're almost going to pass out through the pressure. I think all the traders out there can relate to it. And you know, I think that um, it's something that should be just talked about so much more. I know I talk a lot about it. I've heard you talk about it. How are you doing and how have you learned to be able to deal with the stress and pressure of this business? Well, I think it's important to have things that take your mind off things. I think one of the hardest things in March 2020 was that everything was shut down. You couldn't go for a walk. You couldn't go hang out with friends. You couldn't do anything. The weather was not so great yet in March. You couldn't have made, even the beaches and hiking trails were closed. And that made it doubly hard when all of this happened. I, I try to like just have other interests and other passions in life. And when I'm not in front of the screens to have something else that truly really takes my mind off and give a lot of attention to those other things, not just do them in a perfunctory manner. But like if I want to do something else, I'm going to do something else. And my mind totally switches off from trading. So I do what I need to do, and then I switch my mind, and I'm doing it relatively well, I think, over years, except for some examples like that. <laughs> Look, my friend, you know what? It's like we learn over time how to deal with things better and better, and we're always going to have ebbs and flows, in, not only in our trading, but in just how much it impacts us and how busy markets are. And all my advice is to traders out there is like exactly what you said. Make sure you take time away. And I know Alex, you'll say the same thing that when you take that time away and you just find that balance and you come back, you're fresher in your mind and you make better decisions anyway. It doesn't hurt you right. to take a little time off. It helps you. Right. All right, Alex, thank you so much. I look forward to having you back on the show again in the future. This was such a pleasure. Everybody follow him on Twitter and get his book. 
Alex, thank you again. Until next time, my friend, trade well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. All right, everybody. That's it for this week. I'll see you. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Never miss an episode. Go to anthonycrudelli.com and get on our email list for show notifications and for free content that is exclusively for subscribers. Also on anthonycrudelli.com, you will find tons of videos and education on trading futures, options, and crypto. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Opinions expressed are solely my own and my guests, and they do not express the views or opinions of my sponsors. Futures Radio Show is produced by Crudelli Productions.